Hey everybody, so happy to join you for this midweek Bible teaching and I uh, hope that God has been using this time we've been walking through the book of Philippians in your life. Uh, you know, the, Paul wrote this letter from jail as an encouragement to the believers at the church uh, in the city of Philippi uh, about the joy that is in Christ. And so I know we've been walking through this for the past few weeks. And so this week we are making a stop in chapter 2 of Philippians. And so the whole point of this week really is about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so it is one of those passages in the Bible that is one of those heavy uh, Christological passages. It's centered all about what Jesus did for us. And so really we're going to unpack three things this week. And so what we see first of all is that Jesus is the glue that holds a diverse church together. Uh, and then after we see that Jesus, uh, through what he's done for us, uh, is the glue that holds the church together, even in, in the middle of our differences, we also are going to see how Jesus led by example and humble, sacrificial obedience and how he models that as what it means to be great. Because naturally our ideas about greatness are different than humble, sacrificial obedience. And then finally, we, we just see how Jesus is king. And because Jesus is king, then he's the one we worship. And our worship in heaven should shape the way we do ministry, the way we do life, the way we build his kingdom now is shaped by how heaven is one day going to be. That's our end result. And that should be the goal and purpose which we aim for and do life and how we do ministry and the kingdom and the church here on earth. And so let's dive in. And so in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 is where we get started here in this passage. It says this, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord and of one mind, doing nothing from selfish, selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count one another's more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others." God, help us to look into your word, not only for us to look into it, but to look into us, to change us, to mold us, to make us more like Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. And so as we look into this passage, we see a few things, starting with the unity of the church. And so the first thing we see is that our relationships are a response to what Jesus has done, not just a response to what other people do. And so our natural tendency, propensity as human beings uh, is that we have relationships based upon whether we like people and they're like us. Uh, but the gospel calls for us to respond to how Jesus has loved us, shown affection to us, and then we respond to Jesus rather than just responding to others. In fact, Paul starts this passage by these three rhetorical, rhetorical statements, and that is, if there's any encouragement in Christ, is there any encouragement in Christ like in Philippians 1, 6 in this book where it says that he is never going to forsake us. He is going to in every day, in every way, be conforming us to his image. This, this work of him making us more like himself is a forever kind of work. But then also, is there any comfort in love? Is there any comfort in the love of the gospel that says Jesus, knowing the, the inward crevices of every part of my life, my heart, things that I would blush if other people know, that Jesus still loves me in spite of that. Is there any comfort in that? Then a participation in the Spirit. The fact that we have been made brothers and sisters with all others around the world who believe in Jesus. We have the camaraderie in the Spirit of God. Is there any participation there? Then is there any affection or sympathy? Well, of course there is, right? Is the answer to all these questions. And Hebrews reminds us that as far as the affection and sympathy of Jesus, He's a high priest who came and lived a human life, so he was tempted in every way that we are without sin. And when we have a need, the Bible invites us to draw near to him. So the simple and uh, answer to all these rhetorical statements is, yes, of course, 
Yes, of course, Jesus has done all those things. Yes, of course, the gospel affirms all those things. So he says, because of that, now be unified with one another. Now be unified with others. So in other words, the gospel always starts with reconciliation, the making right, the mending of our relationship between us and God, the creator, the redeemer who has made us and then remakes us through the gospel. Then that solidifies how we have a relationship with other people. And so the vertical shapes are horizontal. And so I think immediately when I say unity, some people's antennas go up and red flags go off because sometimes people mistake that unity is uniformity. Well, let me just say to you, unity is not uniformity. Unity doesn't mean that when you come to know Jesus that we all become robots or we all become clones of someone else. Jesus didn't save you to be somebody else. And so when Jesus saved you, he didn't want you to be like somebody else. Uh, He wants you to be you. And so you can be free in that. And so in other words, uh, if you're, if you're a, a white person, be white. If you're a black person, be black. If you're an Asian person, be, be Asian. If you're Latino, be Latino, right? Uh, if you are an introvert, be an introvert, right? Um, no matter what you are, God saves you and calls you where you are to be who he's created you to be. Um, you know, and you can be comfortable in that. You know, if you, all those different cultural things we have, you know, you can be free in that. If you are a person who likes to, to fish, then do that. If you're a person uh, that doesn't like sports, then be that, right? Uh, and none of those things that we have to change. If you're an Auburn fan, maybe you can change. No, you know, I'm just kidding. Uh, but the, the reality is, is that we have all these things about us that God doesn't call us to become someone else. He calls us to be unified around something bigger and different. So that's what being unified means. It doesn't mean becoming the same. It means choosing to focus on what we have in common rather than what we have that is different. And that's the point that Paul makes in verse two. He says that we have the same Love, and he says we are of the same accord. Those words in the Greek literally mean joint souls. So we are joined together. We are joined together by this camaraderie in the gospel. That what we have together and what Jesus has done for us is bigger than the things that make us different. And so we focus on literally says of one mind. That means continually focusing and returning to the same thing. What is the bullseye for the church? What is a bullseye for following Jesus? It is this camaraderie in the gospel. And so here's the problem. The problem is that for many of us, the natural tendency for all of us, the natural tendency is we seek affiliation with like-minded people rather than identification with Jesus. Because that's the foundation here, he says, for your identity. uh, You are identified with Jesus, not simply affiliated with other people. And so we all have this tendency within ourselves um, for people to to want people to be like us. In fact, sociologists call it ethnocentrism. We all have this propensity, this tendency to automatically think our culture is better than other people's. Well, if other people were just like us and just do the things that seem natural to us, life in the world would be so much better off. And all of us think this way. So it's not, it's not like you're, you sit outside of this. You all have a, we all have a cultural norm uh, that is normal for us in the way that we do life. And so we have to be able to be honest about that, that we have cultural norms in which we tend to want to be around people. So let's imagine it this way. Let's imagine this table is your relationships. So what happens is, what a natural way that we approach human relationships is, uh, I'll just use me for an example, all right, is w- the minute I meet somebody, um, I begin to make judgments about them. How do they look? How do they talk? How do they dress? Uh, what are their dreams? How do they, you're down to all those little minute details I'm evaluating about that person to see if they are like me. 
And the tendency is that in that relationship, that whenever we begin to encounter layers of difference, whether that be color, culture, class, whatever those things may be, we tend to want to push away from the relational table uh, and distance ourselves from that relationship because they are not enough like us. We seek affiliation, right? Rather than identity in the gospel. And so what Paul's inviting us to here is to draw into the table and understand uh, that person's difference from me. Rather than push ourselves away because they're different, we're to lean in and seek understanding and refuse to leave the relational table because we are called to love one another in the gospel in the middle of difference, not because of sameness. And so he invites us to draw in. I love how Pastor Eric Mason said this, that as we draw into that relational table and seek understanding, it's going to do something deep in us. He says this, proximity breeds intimacy. Proximity breeds intimacy. As we get to know people and are close to them and do life with them, we get to know them better. What does this look like? It looks like us leaning in in the relational table and getting to know people better. And, it, and, and particularly for us that we're walking through this challenge of understanding how do we identify with our black brothers and sisters as white followers of Jesus. Uh, if you're a, a white follower of Jesus and you're trying to figure that out, a uh, little, little um, advertisement here. Uh, Dr. Eric Mason's also written a book called Woke Church. It's a huge help to brothers and sisters like us that are trying to understand how do we love and serve our sisters and brothers of color better. And, and what we need to do is we need to do this. At the relational table, we need to lean in and understand, and we need to do this if we're really going to be able to identify with those that are different than us. We need to seek to understand before being understood. So often we're, we're more worried about making our points to get people to come across to our camp and our persuasion about things that we're not always good enough at listening. Myself, I speak first that I often do that. So we need to seek to understand and listen and lean in and make sure we, that we understand way more than we're understood. But I think also we need to ask stories. We need to be honest about, for us uh, as white Christians, we've not experienced the same thing. We're, we're not having to teach our kids how do they walk through a traffic stop. There, there, there are things that I've talked with some black brothers and sisters who are friends. And we've never been pulled over or, or detained in our own driveway, in our own neighborhood, um, because we've been stereotyped. And so I would just say we need to lean in and seek understanding before being understood and have them tell their stories to us so that we can understand better anytime we encounter difference. And here's what this does. What this does is it allows for us to have a connection that is much deeper than the superficial connections by which we often attach ourselves to other people. Those cultural things, right? Those things like the type of music we listen to and how we dress and, uh, and uh, the, the, the hobbies we like and the way we vote and all those things that tend to be the things that we turn people as our people, right? We can set those things aside to have unity in the gospel. Listen to how uh, Paul explains this deeper unity uh, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, to which you have been called in all humility, with gentleness and with patience, bearing with one another, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in you all. Do you think there's any more effort he could have gone through, through human language, to express our unity there, our oneness, and how we are all united through the resurrection of Jesus? In fact, that's where our unity is. Our unity is found in the gospel. And the fact that it's the same 
Father uh, who saved us, the same Savior and the same Spirit that has called us into faith together. So the Father who is Father of all Christians that are adopted into His family, the Savior, Jesus who forgives all sin, and the Holy Spirit who indwells all believers is our common bond of peace, He says. Because here's what it boils down to, church. As far as God is concerned, there is one problem, that's sin. There is one solution, that's salvation. There is one Savior, that's Jesus. There is one race, that's the human race. And the gospel is the answer to all those issues. And so the way that God defines things for us, he says that we are more united than we are divided and we can come together at the relational table in the gospel and set aside stigmas and stereotypes and lean in and seek genuine understanding and loving relationship to one another because the gospel provides that common ground for us. Let's admit, right, there is nothing earth-shaking about like people uniting. The power of the gospel is displayed when very different people are glued together by Jesus. So we're not surprised by flocks. Uh, when we see uh, birds of a feather flock together, when we see th- uh, uh, things that are exactly alike together, it doesn't surprise anybody, right? No one is surprised by a gaggle of rednecks, right? No one is surprised by a school of preppy people. I can raise my, my hand on that, right? Um, by just the fact of uh, the way I dress and those sort of things. I've often been called a preppy person, so I'll just say what I am, right? Um, or, or no one's called off guard by a flock of executives, right? Because like people tend to all come together. People are not surprised, on the other hand, by a white church or a black church or an Asian church or a Latino church. But what people are surprised for and what they do begin to take notice of is whenever a church begins to reach its zip code and all the people from that zip code begin to be drawn towards the gospel, whether white or black, rich or poor, whether they are Republican or Democrat, whether they are young or old, when a church begins to make an impact where they're able to gather around the relational table in the unity of the gospel because Jesus is keeping them there, then a lost world begins to wonder what is supernatural happening in that place. And so he says our unity uh, is not in our sameness, but in our diversity as we follow God together. Because as we love one another, not based upon our sameness, but our difference that glorifies the Jesus who unites people that have no other earthly reason to be together other than a great Savior who has saved them, forgiven them, and united them, not because of their sameness, but in their distinctness and difference. So he says that Jesus is the glue that holds the church together in his supernatural love and affection for us that we have for one another. But then also he tells us and shows us by his example that how we are to humbly and obediently sacrifice as we serve others. Jesus modeled that for us so perfectly. Verses 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so what we learn here is that we get a glimpse of Jesus' pain and sacrifice as he models humility for us that helps us see the depth of God's love for us in the gospel. He helps us, he turns our paradigm of what greatness looks like on its head. See, because what happens is we spend most of our lives seeking glory, naturally, don't we? Uh, fame, recognition for all the talents we have and how, how amazing we are. But Jesus laid down his glory to pursue us. We often spend all our lives pursuing glory, 
But Jesus laid down his glory, his riches, everything he had. Jesus sacrificed it all to extravagantly love us, to provide forgiveness, reconciliation, adoption for us. And Paul walks us through all the levels of what Jesus sacrificed to draw us close into his presence through salvation. It says that he uh, didn't cling to his rights as God. Literally those words in the Greek mean he did selfishly hoard or cling on to the fact that he was God and he didn't have to enter this mess of the broken human world. No, he chose to because he loved us. He showed grace and mercy when he could have simply given us judgment. That's the beauty of the gospel, right? But also he laid aside his glory. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John, Jesus for a moment peels back his humanity for them to get a glimpse of his deity, and it was breathtaking for them. They saw what Jesus looked like as God the Son, who were ever put on a human suit uh, and walked on this earth, and they were amazed by it. He laid down his glory as God to walk on two legs, to put on a, a human suit to carry out a life, death, and resurrection so we could be reunited with God. It says he became not only a human being who were made to worship God, but he became a servant of servants. He, he became a servant of human beings to serve humanity in our deepest need, and that is salvation from our sin and a restoration for our relationship with God. And then it says he became obedient to the point of death, even death upon a cross. Not only did he become a servant of God as a human being, but a servant of human beings, but then it says that he was reduced uh, to a common criminal's death. Only the most despicable and worst of human criminals that the Romans wanted to make an example of, did they crucify naked on a cross at a intersection for all those that passed by to see the shame and brutality with which they treated the worst criminals among them. Jesus went to a cross and endured amazing agony and was taunted and marginalized for our good. He took our shame and our sin and nailed it there and said, it is finished. Jesus turned the paradigm upside down and shows us what it means to really humbly love and serve people and lay aside his glory for our good. But then also it shows us how important humility is in our lives. You know, humility is something that is so central for our lives as followers of Jesus. It's not an elective, it's par for the course. And Jesus showed us that, the importance of humility. In fact, God says over and over again in the Bible things like that he hates pride and that he will, he will um, work against the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So humility can only survive in the presence of God. And when our humility goes, God's presence is reduced in our lives. He goes out from our lives. And so we, humility is so central to our relationship with God. You know, it's, it's so natural for us that what happens is pride sneaks into our lives that is so sneaky and natural for us that often what happens is it hides in at least three areas in our lives. Pride usually takes the form of one of three things. It takes the form of uh, what we know, it takes the form of what we can do, or it takes the form of what we have. It takes the form of our knowledge, it takes the form of our power, or it takes the form of our privilege. Jesus had more power, more privilege, and more knowledge than any human being who could ever live as God himself. Yet the gospel tells us that he laid all those things down because he so loved and pursued his bride, the church. That's the gospel. That's the good news of what Jesus has done for us. And Jesus set the tone for the humility that's to mark our lives as his followers. He showed us the importance of serving others uh, and how greatness is not often how we define it. 
In fact, Jesus showed us that true greatness is not in how much power we can exert over others, but rather it's in how much we can exert all of our power for the good of others. You know, Jesus taught a very hard lesson to two of his disciples in John chapter 20. Peter and John decided, or James and John decided that they were going to have their mom try to talk Jesus into sitting them on his right hand and his left hand when his kingdom was to come. Those were two positions of authority, the the second, third hand man under Jesus, if you will. And so Jesus sits all his disciples down on a hillside and teaches them an important lesson. He says, whoever's going to be greatest among you must be last, and whoever's going to be first must be the servant of all. See, Jesus turned the paradigm upside down and said, what greatness is, is not the fact of how many people you can get to serve you. Rather, it's in how many people you get an opportunity to serve. Jesus totally changed the paradigm of greatness and holding on to our knowledge, power, and privilege to bring our own glory higher. He says, you lay it down for others' good. Jesus models for us that we sacrifice for the good of others so that they can know the glory of God in their lives. The cross of Jesus not only saves us from eternity, but it saves us from ourselves in the present. Because if we're honest, all of us tend to want to do things the opposite of what Jesus does here. All of us tend to want to be the one who is prideful rather than humble. All of us tend to want to uh, be served than to serve. All of us would naturally orient more towards the gain rather than the pain. But the Bible tells us Jesus endured the suffering and shames of the cross for our good. He redefines the paradigm of greatness for us by sacrificial obedience for our good. And so he changes everything for us and he turns our our universe right side up. See, it's what he's accomplished for us here is not only for eternity that he's delivered us from the, the penalty of sin, separation from God forever, but he's also delivering us from the power of sin in and of ourselves. Here's how Augustine defined the power of sin in our lives now. It is the fact that sin turns us inward on ourselves and it makes us prideful. It makes us want to serve others to serve us and to leverage others for our good where Jesus turns that right side up to where we give what we have for the good of others and we love God and others first because again, that vertical reconciliation with God shapes our horizontal reconciliation with other people. Jesus shows us how all of it starts with our humble obedience and sacrifice as we follow and pick up the Savior who followed the cross for us, calls us to pick up the cross as we follow Him with one another. So in the theme of this book that I ran across this as I was preparing for today, here's how I think the apostle would define joy based upon this. Because as we started out this passage, what he said to us was, he said, in order to make my joy complete, be unified, be sacrificial, be obedient. Here's how I think we define that based upon what Paul says, the example of Jesus. Joy is equivalent to our pursuit of Jesus first, others second, then ourselves last. See, our culture and the tendency of our own broken human hearts tells us to pursue our greatness and our good, and in that we'll find joy. But the gospel says, pursue the greatness of God and the good of others, and in that you'll ultimately find joy. And so Jesus lays the example for us about what it means to lay our lives down, and as we do that, we'll actually find our lives in the process. Then finally, he closes out this passage by reminding us of how the end of the story determines how we work through the story in the process of now. He says in verse 9 through 11, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him a name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue confess 
in heaven and on earth that Jesus Christ is the Lord of the glory and God the Father. So he says to us here that ultimately every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess, both in, on heaven, uh, both, uh, excuse me, in earth and below the earth and in heaven. In other words, Jesus is the universal sovereign king. There's not one knee that's not going to bow one day to Jesus, whether that be Satan himself or whether that, that be the most evil of a tyrant you can think of. They'll one day bow their knee to Jesus as he comes ruling and reigning as king. So our invitation now is to invite people to bow their knee to Jesus and worship him now freely as a response to the gospel. So our ecclesiology has to be defined by our eschatology, in other words. So our ecclesiology, it means church, and eschatology means end times. And so how the story is going to end defines how we write the story in the present. And so let me just connect three significant events for you that are important for understanding that unity and diversity and what heaven, how heaven, the end, paints the picture of the now. And so let me just run this core through the Bible. And so if you start in the book of Genesis in chapter 11, you have all of the people of the world speaking one language, building a huge tower, amassing for themselves, a kingdom of which God is not king. God comes and scatters the kingdom by giving them all these different language and dialects. They spread to the corners of the known world uh, because they were seeking to build a kingdom around their own glory rather than God's glory for their own good, rather than the good of the, as God would define it for those people. If you fast forward to Pentecost and Acts chapter 3, God gives the apostles the ability to preach in over 17 different dialects, temporarily reversing the effects of the Tower of Babel, showing us that God was bringing the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to all people, not just Jews. But also he was explaining that the church was not simply of one color or one culture, but for all people. And then if you fast forward to the end of this story, you get to Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, where it says to us there that one day a countless number of people, uh, which you couldn't count if you wanted to, of every, every color, every language, every tribe, every tongue, every people will shamelessly worship the risen Savior and King of Kings, Jesus, around His throne. So that future of what is going to be has to shape the now of what is. Because ultimately, I think what's so important for us is we have to know that Jesus is building a kingdom in which we follow him as king much more than it's a place. In fact, the kingdom of Jesus is not primarily about a destination to be reached. It's about a king to be worshipped. See, often I think that we, we think about one day we're going to heaven and how amazing that's going to be. And we have songs that kind of sing that way, don't we? And it's going to be an amazing place. But I think sometimes as you read the description of heaven, we talk about streets of gold and the, and the gates made of all these beautiful precious stones, and the amazing layout of the city. But as you read through the book of Revelation, as we walk through some of those uh, chapters and the message of the churches even recently, the overwhelming message is that heaven is about the worship of a risen king. The radiance and glory of heaven is not about the spectacular place of the jewels. Ultimately, uh, the streets being paved with gold is like asphalt in heaven. It's simply what they pave the streets with. The glory of heaven is Jesus. Pastor Chris reminded us a few weeks ago as we closed out our Aftermath series that Jesus never came for buildings. He came for a people. Similarly, Jesus' kingdom is not about a place, heaven. It's about a people. 
It's about a multi-class, multicultural people of God that are glued together in their diversity, unified by the, the sacrificial giving love of God that has identified them as brothers and sisters in Christ, that unites them for a calling that is much bigger than a class or a color or a culture and is much greater than any national boundary because he is a universal king who demands universal allegiance and provides universal salvation to every man, woman, boy, or girl that will come. Aren't you glad that the gospel says to us that it doesn't have to be presented to us by an application where Jesus asks us our race uh, or our gender or our age? He says, no, all that will come, come and experience grace and forgiveness through turning from sin and trusting in the Savior who is also King of kings and Lord of lords. And my prayer is that our church would be a church that is a preview of what heaven one day will be faithfully and fully and finally. Is all different types of people worship Jesus together as they see the love of God and how we love and affirm one another. Not because we look the same, not because we talk the same, not because we vote the same, but because we have the same Savior that unifies us and loves us and calls us to love people well. Because after all, what is love uh, in public but justice? As we justly walk with one another and humbly serve one another. So because of the universal kingships of Jesus, that shapes a lot of our now. And so what that means is, in reaching our culture, that we have to have uh, the timeless message of Jesus we never lose, yet we have to have timely methods. So that means for us, if we're going to reach all the people in our zip code, that we don't just do what we do based upon those that are already here, but those that are not yet here. How can we reach all the people in our community? Are we willing to do that? Also, when you think about how your now is shaped in view of eternity, it shapes everything about what we see about the identity of Jesus, that he humbly sacrificed all of his glory for the good of those he was going to save. And so how does that define how we see ourselves? How does that define that we want to absolutely eliminate and run out every area of pride in our lives? We see that Jesus laid down any knowledge, power, and privilege he had for the good of those he wanted to save. We see that Jesus relentlessly pursued a relationship with all kinds of people so that they could be saved through the gospel. What does that look like in you? So I encourage you, how does what you want to see in eternity shape the now of the story you're writing? My prayer is that as a church, both locally, regionally, and globally, we not be satisfied with simply what we like to do or what's comfortable. We be drawn into a calling of the greater story that God's going to write. Of every tribe, tongue, and nation, every color, culture, and nationality of people worshiping a risen king together in a redemptive community that explains to a lost and watching world there's something supernaturally happening here in Three Circle Church. 